Friends, this morning, our sermon is going to be in Joshua chapter 8. So whether you are back there or in your seats, we're going to ask that you rise if you are able for the reading of God's word. It's going to be Joshua chapter 8, 1 through 9, 14 through 29. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock shall you take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. He commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come after us until we have drawn them away from the city. Can you picture it? For they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush, seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. Joshua and all of Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. As soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set it on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, the smoke of the city went up. Then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. The others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000 all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. 
At sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree. They threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and they raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray, church. Jesus, we thank you again for your presence here amongst us. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to coerce you to be with us. You desire to be with your people. You desire to sit enthroned on the praises of those who know your great name. Jesus, as we now dive into this passage, may what is revealed and illuminated to us be from heaven, be from you and for you. We don't need my words, we need you. So come and speak, Jesus. Come and speak, Holy Spirit. Lord, today may we come face to face with the great faithfulness of God. And in that presence, be transformed. Would you tend to us to the deepest parts that no one sees, that we think no one knows? Would there, Jesus, right there, would you meet us this morning with your presence, and specifically, we ask Jesus, with your faithfulness. We love you, Lord, and we are so glad, so glad, more than words can describe, that you love us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. For those of you who are visiting for the first time this morning, or you're new or newer, or you have no idea what we're talking about, this passage that we just read may seem a little disjumbled to you. You may say, I feel like I was dropped into the middle of a story. Because you were. You were absolutely dropped into the middle of the story. What we talked about this morning, and what we're going to talk about this morning in Joshua 8, is very much connected to what we discussed last week. And last week, we looked at the sin of Achan, which we realized was not just Achan's sin, but Israel's sin. Church, let us never forget and never underestimate the power of sin. It is the one thing that would keep us from God. But as we looked last week at the ripple effects of sin, like dropping a water in a pond and watching those waves spread out, we also looked at how God meets that and responds redemptively to it, which is why we also have to say, never overestimate sin, because Jesus has already conquered it, amen? amen? This week, friends, we're going to look at what I'm calling the means of victory. When I was about seven or eight, I started doing uh, Taekwondo and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, both taught to me by my uncle. And it was funny having one guy teach you two different forms of martial arts because he taught them very differently. Because inherently, those forms of martial arts are trying to do different things. Taekwondo, or karate, has much to do with striking and certain forms of combat poses. Whereas Brazilian, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is all about grappling and responding to what your opponent is doing to you and turning it around on them. And so it was funny being seven, eight, nine, and for the years I would do it, learning two different ways how to win a fight. Because Taekwondo would teach you, take the fight to them. But Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu would teach you, let them bring the fight to you. Which is just very, very different. A very different mentality to, to go, uh, put yourself in. But I'm sharing that with you this morning because, friends, how do you win a fight? Whatever kind of fight you want to imagine in your head, whether it be a fist fight, you're being attacked in the alley, that we pray never happens. If it's a fight at home, it's a fight with your spouse, a fight at work, a long tenured situation that you can't seem to shake, how do you win a fight? The one thing that Taekwondo and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu both agreed on was that you're going to win that fight. But what the Bible absolutely disagrees on 
is that you won't win that fight. It's not actually up to you. Friends, this morning as we go through Joshua 8, we're going to look at, again, what I call the means of victory. How do we win a fight? The fights that really matter. The fights that our souls are on the line for. The fights that have to do with God's goodness in our lives. That have to do with how we live out of that goodness. We're talking about the things that change us for eternity, starting now but lasting forever. How do we win those fights, the fights of the soul? Friends, we don't. He does. And we're going to see that time and time and time again in Joshua 8. But we are a people of specifics. We need details because details help us to take a really big idea and make it palpable. And so, friends, our three points for this morning The means of victory themselves that we see in this passage is trusting through obedience, the Lord is my banner, and the command to intercede. So, customary sip. Let's go. This passage that we just dove into is absolutely round two. If you imagine a boxing match where there is absolutely an underdog and the title contender, Israel's the title contender. And they think, we're going to go in and we're going to wipe the floor with these people. And they don't. They actually lose 36 men, which is heartbreaking because that's actually the first time they lose people to combat as they are going into the conquest of Canaan. You have to imagine that. We're winning, we're winning, we have a perfect track record. Boom. Not so longer. And so you can imagine them getting really caught off guard. And as we kind of went into that last week, so we're not going to totally rehash it, but this chapter brings us back It's still Israel versus AI. It's now round two. They've had the floor wiped, and now they need to stand back up and get in that ring. The conquest of Canaan is still happening. The march to inherit the the um, the march to get the inheritance that God has prepared for them still needs to happen. And so, what we see, even right away in Joshua eight, is a reminder of all the things that kept them from winning in the first place. It was specifically sin, yes. They became tainted and defiled. And they actually abdicated the high ground like we talked about last week. But God also knows that even though that has been taken care of now, God's wrath has been poured out and has, uh, the merit has been met. God knows the temptation to go down that path still looms. They gave in to fear once. Who's to say they're not going to give in to fear again? And God knows this. And so when you look at Joshua 7 and you compare it to Joshua 8, even right away you start to see that God almost puts on an overabundance display of his faithfulness to them. It's like God knows you're going to be tempted to go down this path again. Let me give you numerous reminders why you don't have to, why I don't want you to, and that I'm actually taking care of it. In Joshua 7, we see that when they go to fight the first time and they lose those 36 men, the Bible describes this phenomenon. Their hearts melted. You ever feel like your heart melted? There's just no strength within your bones? They were afraid. And the very first thing that we have heard over and over and over again in the book of Joshua is what? Do not fear. It's the first thing he says in Joshua 8. Do not fear. Israel thought they had this battle in the bag because when those spies went to go see how many people they had, they are a few. They're small numbers, which is why the first time, they only sent about 3,000. Well, did you catch how much they sent this time? 30 
8,000. Why? Because they felt like it? No, because God says, take all the fighting men. It's going to be an interesting tidbit as to why they need to take 30,000. Seems like overkill. But I promise you it's not. But we continue. After they had their debacle back in Joshua 7, Joshua and the elders of Israel are proclaiming, God, we're afraid we're going to be given into the hands of the Amorites. We're going to be given into the hands of the people you told us we're going to conquer. They're going to get the upper hand. We're never going to beat them. And God has to remind them again, I never asked you to beat them. I never asked you to beat them. I asked you to walk in obedience to what I said I would do because I have given them into your hand. That's a very different statement. It's a very different emphasis that we dare not miss. But here's an interesting one that I saw between Joshua 7 and 8. In Joshua 7, they don't have a battle plan. They're just like, eh, we'll wing it. We have the numbers. We have the high ground. We'll take them. And they lose. They don't necessarily need a battle plan. They don't need necessarily the specifics. But God is so good to meet them where they're at, he gives them a detailed battle plan. This is what you're going to do. You're going to send people here to wait in ambush. You're going to send people here, and they're going to draw out the main forces. You're going to act like you're defeated. And then as you draw out the main forces, you're going to pincer attack them. That's what happened in our passage. As the people of Ai come out of the city, they get stuck between the ambushers behind them, who have conquered their city in their absence, and the main forces of Israel, and they squeeze. God gives them a very specific battle plan. Do you know what that must have been like to their hearts that were afraid that they were just going to lose again? Think about that. Sometimes fear reigns so ugly in our heads because fear is intimately tied with the unknown. It's why kids are afraid of the dark. It's not because they're actually afraid of the absence of light. They're afraid because they don't know what's out there. And God is so kind to meet them in that. In Joshua 7, we see them, we see uh, God tell the Israelites that all of the precious metal, the gold and the silver, is going to belong to the Lord. That at the end of the day, it's not actually about the plunder, but it's going to belong to the Lord anyway because he doesn't want them to be tempted and he's going to do something with it later. But now in Joshua 8, he's so kind to them. This is almost like an afterthought. But he's so kind to them and says, you guys can keep it this time. You guys can keep it. Because I want to show you how much I love you. I want to show you how much I'm going to take care of you. Like, whoa. It's like the extra details, right, that actually show us the intricacies, the nuances, the depth and the width and the height and the breadth, as Paul says in Ephesians, of God's love for us. Friends, God has to do an overabundance of his faithfulness in this moment in time, again, because he knows the temptation that they're going to face. And that temptation is to fear again. Friend, friends, where do all temptations come from? Sin. All of them. They're all rooted in sin. And so lest you miss the point that I'm making, I want to be very clear with you and very loving. Fear is sin. Now, I say that we have tension. Whoa. Hold on. You're telling me if I'm walking in the city at night because I just had some dinner with some friends who were out of town and I'm walking by a dark alley and my GPS is telling me how to go that way to get back to my parking garage, but I decide I'm going to go around, that's sin? No, that's probably good caution. It might be sin. It might be common sense. A lot of us pause and we go, whoa, hold on, I can think about a hundred different exceptions 
that I'm going to justify in my heart and in my mind why my fear makes sense. And we can have a long conversation about that. But there's one passage I want to point out to you. Okay. In Revelation 21, it's the passage that starts talking about the new heaven and the new earth. It's the passage we love to quote where Jesus himself is saying, I'm going to wipe away every tear. There's not going to be any sickness, nor death, no darkness. The world will be me right forever once again. And as Jesus is describing what is going to go into the pit of fire, the things that he is permanently removing, the very first thing he mentions is the fearful. In conjunction with the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and the liars. What's funny is we would look at the rest of those, those designators and we would have no issue saying that's sin. We would have no issue saying that's sin. But fearful, and yet it's the first one he lists. The reason I think that causes us such pause and such hesitation and honestly such inner struggle is because if this is true, we have to reckon with the fact that we are a lot more afraid than we're willing to tell people. And we are a lot more afraid than we want to admit. Because if it's not sin, I can just push it away. But if it is sin, I can't just do nothing with that. Equating fin to seer, equating, woo, equating fin, <laughs> fear to sin suddenly makes it that much more bigger. Yeah, a little tongue twister. Suddenly makes it that much more bigger. It amps, it brings up the stakes. It amps it up. Friends, the reason why the fear that we're talking about this morning is sin, it's because it's rooted in these two lies. The one we're very familiar with, and we must keep reacquainting ourselves with, that God isn't good and he can't be trusted. That's what fear is trying to tell you over and over and over again. God isn't good. He does not have your back. He can't be trusted. It all now falls on your shoulders. You figure it out. You're alone. You're hopeless. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. That is the giant lie that fear tries to cloud us with, to suffocate us in. And unfortunately, a lot of us are very familiar with that. We are. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, can raise our hands to a time where we have experience, where we have looked back and saw how fear was the very thing keeping us from the very person who was trying to meet us in our situation, and that's Jesus. We all have those stories, unfortunately. But thank God that God still met us anyway. But this second lie, even though I'm in Christ, I deserve what's coming for me. Ironically enough, uh, this point, I wasn't sure I was going to include. But just last week at youth group, even though this wasn't the conversation of the evening, we actually started talking about karma. Ironically enough, teenagers ask good questions. You should listen to them. Even though I'm in Christ, I deserve what's coming. This is almost like the Christianese karma. I'm going to do good things, and I'm going to get good things in return. And I'm going to do bad things, and I'm going to pay the price for it later. And the Bible actually has a very specific verse that deals with this, believe it or not. This language is intentional on purpose. But before we get to that verse, can we ruminate for just a second? How many of us walk around knowing 
and believing, we have been set free in Jesus Christ. We don't pay the wages of our sin because he has. Hallelujah. Thank you that the cross and the blood that was spilt on it is sufficient for all sins across all time. Thank you that the blood of Jesus atones once and only once. We don't need to keep recapitulating or re-earning or recertifying ourselves in God's kingdom. He says it is finished. It is finished. And yet, we get afraid, specifically when we make the mistakes. We mess up. We do something we know we shouldn't do. And then fear creeps in and says, oh, you're going to get it. Right? Like, we know that. We know that happens. And we know that's not true, and yet we so struggle to not live life as, as if that's not true. But John says there's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoa. It's like God knew. And whoever fears has not been perfected in the love. So we go, hold on, we read this. The perfect love casts out fear part. Great. I don't have to fear punishment because Jesus has taken it. Thank God, hallelujah. But if I fear it's because I haven't been perfected in the love, that feels like, oh, hold on. Am I a half Christian then? My half-baked Christian, is this not real or sincere if I fear? Is my salvation at stake? Is my faith at stake? Like, what's going on here? Please explain this. Because how am I supposed to trust God? How am I supposed to exercise that trust through obedience? How am I supposed to not fear to follow in his footsteps faithfully because he has shown me his faithfulness? And the temptation to fear and the sometimes I will still fear still being prevalent in my life. How do I reconcile those two realities? Friends, like we talked about last week, the cross has dealt with the power and the presence of sin. I'm sorry, that was dealt with the power and the penalty of sin, but not its presence, which is why we are saints who still sin as opposed to sinners because of the blood of the Lamb. But Paul tidies this up for this in First Philippians, in Philippians, excuse me, Philippians chapter 1, where he's talking to people who are already faithful followers of Jesus, and he is commending them on their faith and he says to them, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to, uh, to full completion till the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's the one who clarifies for us that your faith is not going to be perfected in this life. It's not. It doesn't mean it's up for grabs. It doesn't mean you have to worry about it somehow not being good enough. Paul's the one who says, God is the one who birthed and started the faith in you. He will see it to its end. He will see it to its end. For us, friends, this is the question we must ask ourselves. The same way I'm sure Joshua and the elders of Israel and all of the people of Israel ask themselves, where am I afraid? We're talking about this because, again, we're talking about the means of victory. How do I win? How do I actually receive the inheritance that God has already promised is going to be mine in Christ Jesus? How do I get there? Fear ain't going to get you there. Not that I think anybody actually thinks fear is going to be the avenue from which we experience victory, but it certainly is the roadblock that sometimes we feel stuck and no way of dealing with. But friends, where are we afraid? Because if we're afraid, we won't follow his leading. If we're afraid, we won't trust him. We won't depend on him. Or we're afraid we're going to look to everything and everyone that's not him to be him. And we're not going to see what Jesus has for us. Where is fear blocking me from trusting God and obeying? 
That's our first reflection question this morning. So go ahead, take 30 seconds. Where is fear blocking me from trusting God and obeying? Jesus says, as we continue on in the sermon, would you minister and meet us? To the spirit of fear, we say, be gone in the name and authority of Jesus. You have no place here. You will not prevent us from meeting with our God, and you will not prevent us from hearing from his voice. Jesus, speak to us, please. Even now, minister to the parts where we are afraid, that we may hear your voice, that we may be found in your presence and be transformed there. The second means of victory. The Lord is my banner. There's this funny little detail that happens in Joshua 8 where the symbol for the ambush to happen, right? How do the ambushers know when to go? How do they know? This is the symbol that God gives Joshua to give them. I'm going to stretch out my javelin. You see the javelin up in the air? It's go time. Go. And that could be it. That could be a cool little detail. But it's not. It's so much more than that. Why and how is it so much more than that? Because, friends, like most parts of the Bible, and by most I mean all, all the parts of the Bible are connected to each other. <laughs> Nothing is just existing in and by itself. It is all a, a tapestry well woven by the single author that it's had. And so when we see Joshua stretch out the javelin, we should know and remember, and if not, you'll learn this morning, back to a time when Moses was still the leader of God's people all the way back in Exodus 17. And in Exodus 17, Israel is going up against a people known as the Amalekites. The Amalekites are Canaanites. It's kind of like how there are different counties in every state, but you can, you know, whether you live in Orange County or Rockland County, you're considered a New Yorker, even though we say that only applies to the people in the city, but they can't own that, so whatever. You're considered a New Yorker. And even though you can live in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Florida, Texas, wherever, you're an American because you live in the, in the United States. Make sense? The Amalekites are our type of Canaanites. Canaanite, Canaan is the region. In fact, it's the region in, Joshua's, in the book of Joshua that we see God's people systematically moving through and conquering as they follow God's leading. But this is all before that. This is all before that. This is actually, in Exodus 17, the first battle God's people have after the Red Sea has been parted. So they're not even a battle-tested people. But they fight. And they win that battle. It's great. But that battle's not an ordinary battle. For you see, what wins that battle is not superior numbers or superior tactics, which I said last week is the two things you need to win in ancient warfare. You need good numbers, you need good tactics. And if you have enough numbers, you don't even need good tactics. But when you go back and read Exodus 17, you realize even though Israel may or may not have had bigger numbers, we're not sure, they definitely didn't have any tactics. They won the battle. How? And what does any of that have to do with Joshua 8? For you see, in Exodus 17, we see this reality play out. Moses is with two people, Aaron and Hur, H-U-R. And he's standing up on a hillside overlooking the battlefield. Can you guess who's leading the battlefield down below? Who's in front of God's 
forces. Joshua. So he's been here before. He knows, he knows the story intimately. Remember that. But when Moses, as Exodus 17, 11 tells us, when Moses held up his hand, holding his staff, Israel prevails. And when he lowers them, Amalek prevails. Why is the entire battle of a people group hinged upon this? Why? This has nothing to do with what's actually happening down there, except it has everything to do with what's happening down there. Because as we have learned and are continuing to learn, friends, the barrier between the earthly realm and the spiritual realm is much thinner than we like to admit or believe or are comfortable with. The Amalekites are Canaanites. And I keep saying that because the people of Canaan worship Baal or Baal, a fake god, a demonic entity that wants to usurp and be in the place of Yahweh. And so as God's people have seen God part the Red Sea, now come across a people group that is also nomadic, just like they will become. So there's a lot of similarities between these groups. They are coming up against a very spiritual battle that has nothing to do with the amount of people they have on the ground. Because God, Yahweh, is the one who tells Moses, lift up your hands as you have raised them and trust me that I'm going to win this battle. You will win. So much so that there are good times because Moses is an old man by this point, and he's only going to become an older man, that his hands and his arms start to get tired. That's how long this battle lasts. That's why Aaron and Hur are there, because at some point he can't hold up his hands anymore, so they have to hold his hands for him. We see that this battle highlights the spiritual reality coming close to the earthly reality. It wasn't just two people groups fighting for dominance. It was, who's the real God? Because he's going to win this fight. Moses knows this, and so when they win that fight, he builds an altar, which should sound familiar to us because an altar is certainly a different type of Ebenezer, a memorial stone stack. Moses builds an altar, and he calls it Jehovah Nisi. It's the only time in the Bible this shows up. You can also translate it as Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner, which is why that's the title of our second point. The Lord is my banner. Why is that important? Because the idea of a banner very much has a very specific idea that's connotated to us, especially as ancient people would understand it. A banner is a place where you would rally. Could you imagine several tens of thousands of people fighting across hillsides and mountain plains and forests and woods? How do you keep track of it all? How do you know where it's safe, where it's not? Where are my people? If I get lost, how do I get back to my army? How do I get back to my people? How do you know? They don't have technology. They can't just look around and be like, oh, they're there. Except they actually did just look around and say, oh, there they are. Because they had a banner. It was a rally point. You saw your country. You saw your people's flag flying high in the sky. And you said, there is my people. And that is where I will be safe. So when Moses says, the Lord is my banner, he says, the Lord is my safety. This is a very grainy but still very appropriate picture of the German Empire in World War I flying their flag. The German Empire started something that even modern armies still keep to this day, where so often the flag used to fly in the middle or the back. And the Germans said, we are proud, and we will fly it in the front. You will know who we are, and you will see us coming. 
Believe it or not, they're not the ones who came up with that. Because the importance of a banner, sorry Germans, the importance of a banner also signifies allegiance. This flag represents to whom I belong. This flag tells you everything you need to know about me. So when they say, the Lord is my banner, it means I belong to God. I am Yahweh's, and nothing you can do can or will change it. Friends, do you know how much of that is a message that we need to hear even today? Do you know how often I talk about that with our teenagers? Who you are and who gets to decide your identity? Not us. Not us as individuals, it's not us as a collective, and it's not society, it's him. And we see that idea all the way back in Exodus, where Moses declares the Lord is my banner. But also the importance of a banner is that it, it, it connotates an idea of strength. Israel's banner was different than others. Because for all other countries and all other people, their banner was simply the name of their people group. Right? We fly the American flag because we are citizens of the United States of America. That makes sense. But they don't fly the flag of Israel. They fly the flag of Yahweh. The banner of Yahweh, because Yahweh is their banner. What are they trying to communicate there? My strength is not found in a country or in a people group or in the neighbor on my left and right. My neighbor is, I'm sorry, my neighbor. My strength is found in the Lord and only the Lord. It's the idea we've actually seen last week and the week before and the week before where God's people fight differently, right? Jericho, worship until the walls come down. Why not just get a bunch of siege weapons and lay siege to it until it comes down? We fight differently because the Lord is our strength. Here's our portion and our help. Here's, he's the ever-present help in our time of need. This matters, friends, because at the end of that battle in Exodus 17, God tells Moses this very specific instruction. The Lord said to Moses, write this memorial about this battle, write it down in a book, and recite it to who? Joshua. There was one person that God wanted to make sure would remember this battle and how it was won. That's Joshua. Because so many decades down the road, when they would find themselves in a very similar predicament, Joshua already knows what to do. He doesn't question the Lord telling him, keep up that javelin. Go back and read Joshua 8. God doesn't say anything about, you're going to win if you keep it up, and you're going to lose if you keep it down. He did in Exodus 17. He doesn't in Joshua 8. Why? Because Joshua does not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin. Joshua already knew the means to victory. He remembered. He remembered God's faithfulness to him so many years ago. That's one of the privileges and the beauties of getting older. I'm 31 and about to turn 32. I've lived a good life thus far, praise God, and I have my fair share of memories to draw from, to reflect and remember and give thanks to God for his faithfulness to me. But I can't wait till I'm 80. Honestly. And 90. <laughs> I can't wait. I've long joked with my friends, I'm going to live to 113. It's going to do it. <laughs> as long as you're okay with it. <laughs> Why? Why would I be looking forward to living to 80 and 90? And I hope that those of you who are not there yet are also looking forward to that too. Because do you know the amount of memories and moments in your life? You'll be able to, get, you'll be able to look back and say, Wow, God is good. I am privileged to know and understand in part the faithfulness that God has towards me and my family and us. 
but I fail in comparison to those of us who are older than me. Because by God's grace, they have a greater measure and understanding of the love and the faithfulness that God has had. Because they've experienced more of God. That's the thing I'm looking forward to. And I hope you two are, you are as well, friends. No matter how old you are. <laughs> but Joshua knows and remembers. And he knows this battle is not going to be won with their numbers or their tactics. Even though they have 30,000 people. They certainly have the numbers. And yet that's not what wins the fight. Yahweh wins. Yahweh wins. So friends, who is my banner? Where am I trying to find safety, identity, and strength from? Because if we look for those things in anything but the Lord, we're going to miss the inheritance he has already promised us. We are not going to find ourselves on the path to victory. When we try to get there on a path that God has said, it's not good, and will not take you there, because it doesn't take you to me. Where are we finding our strength, identity, and safety from? The last means of victory, the command to intercede. Why was it so important for Moses and Joshua to follow God's command and lift their hands or, or that javelin? Why? Why that specific action? Whenever you come across weird things like this in the Bible, pause, friends. Read it over. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and reveal to you what you do not already yet have. So you may have a greater and further understanding of not only him and his word, but a greater independency of faith in him. Don't skip over the weird parts of the Bible. They're actually the best parts. Why was it important for Moses and Joshua to follow God's command and lift their hands in javelin? Because, friends, believe it or not, this is an example for us of what we call intercessory prayer. Now, depending on how you grew up in the church or what, specifically what denomination or faith tradition you may come from, intercessory prayer can mean a couple different things to you. And today, we're not going into that hole. We're not going to deep dive into that. But what we are going to talk about this morning is the simple idea that Intercessory prayer is the call to pray on behalf of others. At its core, this is what it's about. Does it have its nuances and different ways we do it? Absolutely. That's a conversation for a different day. But here we see Moses and Joshua participating in intercessory prayer. Those acts of faith, trusting and obeying God, exercising that trust through obedience, declaring that the Lord is their banner, and trusting that he's going to win the earthly fight and the spiritual fight is a form of intercessory prayer. They are praying on behalf of his people, and they are joining in on the work that Yahweh himself is doing. For those of you who are here for our Ignite conference, Pastor Debbie said this line that we have said once before and we'll probably say again, that any time we have an opportunity to minister or pray for somebody else, it's like God saying, I'm bringing my kid to work today. She specifically said, bring, my daddy, or it's bring your daughter to work day, or son, if you're a son. Right? It's this idea that, man, God is already up to something, and he's calling us to join him, because he delights for us to be in his presence, but he also knows it's good for our souls to be reminded it's not actually all about us, it's actually all about him. Are we commanded to intercede? Absolutely. First Timothy, First Timothy 2, 1 through 3. I'm not going to read all these for you today, but you can just go ahead and look them up themselves. Take a picture or find it in the, in the weekly guide that our disciple group leaders get. If you're not part of a disciple group, plug, get involved in one. Okay? But we're actually commanded to intercede. And Samuel himself actually points out to us. He says to Israel, should I fail to pray for you, I would be sinning. Whoa. That's big. But then... 
we see James talk about it in James 5, where it's that passage that starts in verse 16 that says, confess your sins to one another. And then it starts talking about how we can confess our sins to one another because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. God himself has said through James, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Not your righteousness, his righteousness that we receive in Christ Jesus. I don't have to be in right standing with God. Jesus has done that for me. And so because I have that righteousness, that right standing, when I pray, things change. And you know what's crazy about it? The example that James gives for how prayer can change things, he references Elijah, whose first act as a prophet is to obey God and pray that Israel will not experience rain for 42 months. He literally calls down a drought, and it works. I want the prayer to be able <laughs> to change natural phenomena. Elijah does some pretty crazy things that we can get into on a different day. And he's a beautiful example about how the faith that we have in Jesus and the righteousness that he gives us, when we pray, it changes things because we're in alignment with the one who has the power to actually change things. Our prayer is not just one-on-one, -on -one, quiet, cool practice time with God. We are actually having a conversation with the creator of the universe who put all these things into motion anyway. Whoa. Friends, we are commanded and we are called to intercede because Jesus did. I don't even need to put up the other verses. That alone is good enough. Because Jesus did. And still is. He still is. But you know what's actually really cool? The Holy Spirit does too. And it's not a coincidence that these are in the same chapter in Romans 8. I think Paul is trying to get our attention about something. The Holy Spirit does as well. So here's a very interesting thing. Here's some spiritual logic for you. If I heed the command to pray on behalf of others for their good and for the glory of God to be revealed in their lives, I'm actually taking an opportunity to step into the presence of the Holy Spirit because he's already interceding. So have you ever struggled to feel like, God, where are you? God, what are you up to? I can't hear you. I can't hear you the way other people feel like they say they hear you. You ever struggle with that? You ever feel like you're insecure? You haven't leveled up in your Christianity and your faith? Hey, friends, here's a really easy way that God says, you're looking for me? Start praying for others because I'm already there. That, that, friends, should be a good word for our souls. But as if we needed more proof, Revelation 8, notice the 8s. God's funny like that. Notice how this picture that's happening in heaven is described as this. Another angel came and stood at the altar, the place where we would sacrifice in the Old Testament, has a spiritual counterpart in heaven. The place where we would sacrifice. God, here's my offering. Here's, here's what I have to bring to you. An angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to mix with what? The prayers of all the saints. Our prayers are being offered up to God in heaven on his altar as a good and pleasing sacrifice. God receives that, and he does something with it. He actually does. If you would continue to read the passage of Revelation 8, and I encourage you to do so, so much of what happens next in that passage is because of what the saints pray for. It again points to a reality that what is happening with our own two eyes and five senses is not all that is happening. That the earthly and the spiritual are much more connected, and things change here when things change there. And we can actually change things there to see things change here. Why else would Jesus say what you bind is bound in? Why didn't he say earth? 
What you loose is loosed in heaven. Why didn't he say earth? So friends, who is God calling me to intercede for? Who is God calling me to intercede for? That their faithfulness of God and his glory may be revealed in their lives. I had a very wise adult in my life tell me a number of years ago that so often the people of God fail to understand that the prayer that other people are praying for, that God would answer, is them. It's you. So often, how, how much do we pray or know of others who pray? God, show up in my life. And God's like, I'm trying to. But they haven't heard yet. They haven't gone yet. They haven't showed up and responded to the call. It's not that God can't make his manifest presence. Absolutely. He can and does do that. But he also wants to send his people who he has commanded, work on my behalf. Work on their behalf. Pray for them. You hate them, pray for them. You love them, pray for them. You're sick and tired of seeing them, pray for them. You don't think anything is going to change in their life, pray for them. You think they've been stuck in the same thing for 40 people, 40 years, and 40 people stuck in the same thing for 40 years, pray for them. Pray for them. Because Jesus is. Because Jesus is. He has not given up. He hasn't given up. Why should we? Let's not buy into this lie that says our prayer is not going to do anything. That our prayer is just, eh, here you go. I have to do it because I have to do it, so here you go. But it doesn't mean much. Friends, that's a lie from the pit of hell. The Bible emphatically teaches otherwise. We are commanded to pray on behalf of others. Yes, the family of God and those we want to see in the family of God. So that heaven and earth would become one. And that we would see things change on earth as it is in heaven. So who is God calling me to intercede for? Maybe it's some of the family you spent Thanksgiving with. Maybe it's the person sitting on your left and right. Maybe it's the person you wish was sitting on your left or right. Friends, the fight for our inheritance will be won if and only if we use these means of victory that God has outlined for us. Exercising our trust in him, not giving in to fear, but offering him that which makes us afraid and trusting that his faithfulness will see us through. Acting on that obedience. Acting on that faith. Clinging to our God as our banner, finding our strength, our safety, and our identity in him and him alone and looking to nowhere else and no one else for the solution that so eludes us but also, friends, getting on our hands and knees, metaphorically and maybe even literally, interceding alongside God on behalf of his people. Because is it all on your shoulders? No. But God is saying, come to work with me. When we do these things, friend, the victory that God has already won for us, we see realized in our midst. And let me be very clear, because sometimes it can get confusing. The Israelites are fighting for land. But it was never about land. It's about his presence we will find God's presence for ourselves and for those who so desperately need it when we do these things. Let's pray, church.
Lord Jesus, thank you again for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that both your written word and your spoken word confirm and remind us once again that you love us, you are with us. You have never forsaken us, you have never abandoned us. That when you tell us we do not have to fear, that we can believe that that's actually true and possible, you're simply calling us to walk in faith and obey. Not obey blindly, but obey because we know the faithfulness of the God who's calling us out on those waters. God, thank you for the beautiful opportunity to declare to the watching world who our strength, identity, and safety is. May they be our song today and our song this week, that the Lord is our banner. I do not have to fight with my own means to try and achieve victory in the areas of my life or in the areas of the lives of others. And Lord, thank you for the privilege, because it is actually a privilege to go to work with you, to see your victory become actualized in our lives by praying for others, by spilling out of ourselves for others, for taking the time to come to your throne room, to come to your presence, Jesus, and say, this isn't okay. And Jesus, we want to see it changed. So would you do it? Because you're the only one who can. Lord, impress upon our hearts an overwhelming desire to be rid of fear, to be rid of apathy, to be rid of the things that would prevent us from coming into your presence and praying on behalf of others. Would we be transformed there to be more like you, Jesus, as we do that? And would we walk around declaring the Lord is our banner? Would these means of victory, Jesus, bring us into your presence? In new and profound ways, we ask and pray.